founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the co-founder and president of Sunderstorm, Keith Sitch. Keith and his co-founder Cameron created Sunderstorm, a parent company of Kana Gummies, to help people achieve a life of harmony and wellness with consciously made science-based cannabis products. Keith has a background of more than a decade on Wall Street in fixed income sales and trading. Keith later moved to Northern California and managed real estate projects from retail to offices and even urban infill development. Keith later went on to co-found Sunderstorm in 2015 and forever changed the cannabis business. To tell us all about Sunderstorm and his mission is Keith himself. So Keith, my new friend, let's get right to it. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to it. Yes, I am excited about this interview. And I'm particularly where I'd like to start is the interesting leap from Wall Street to starting a cannabis company. How, how did you find yourself doing that? That was a, uh, a long journey between. Um, you know, I worked on Wall Street for 13 years and you know, I feel like my motivation to work on Wall Street was was really financial success and kind of how society typically defines success. And and what I really discovered when I kind of had that in my hands, that it really didn't give meaning to my life that I wanted. And so wasn't an easy thing. I walked away from a big chunk of change. But uh, when I was 35, I just said, you know, I need to pursue other things in life and and really kind of even explore my own inner uh, consciousness as part of this. So I got out of the rat race and I actually did what I think is one of the hardest 180 degree turns that I've seen from anybody on wall street. Uh, I came out to San Francisco and got a degree in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness, uh, which is really kind of Asian spirituality, you know, Buddhism, Taoism meets Western science and meets Western philosophy, like, you know, Jungian, uh, you know, archetypes. So uh, what I did is I just took three years, dropped out of the world and read a bunch of books that have been sitting on my shelf that I never had time to read. Wow. And, uh, and had a chance to really explore, you know, the conversation with other people that were interested in these kind of crazy thought processes as well. So um, it was really amazing to come out of Wall Street. And I feel like in a way, I maybe even needed to go through some kind of retraining of the mind because uh, you get pretty hyper-competitive. Um, trust me, lots of good people on Wall Street. I had a great experience. I have nothing really negative to say, but you know, it's a big world of ideas out there, and I feel like sometimes you're caught in a very small part of it in any you know, career that you take, uh, whether it's Wall Street or you know, uh, you know, working down the block. So uh, change is good. Absolutely. So you had a deep dive into some really heavy hitters of thinkers like Carl Jung and uh, sounds like several kind of Eastern philosophy and spirituality uh, thinkers. Had that been part of your past that you picked back up, like an interest earlier in life that you picked back up? Or was that the first time really kind of doing that inward expansion kind of journey? Really the first time that I did that uh, kind of really inner work. Um, and, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, like I said, it was part of kind of almost deprogramming <laughs> coming out of Wall Street. 
Uh, and, you know, I just feel like it's very easy to go through life and kind of read the newspapers or talk to your friends and, and feel like your point of view is the truthful point of view, when in fact, it's really complicated. Uh, and, and when you begin to look th through history and through the contemporary times through different eyes, you have that aha moment like, damn, maybe I actually know less than I ever thought I knew. And so uh, the more I did the program, the more I realized the less I knew. And I felt like that was a great beginning. Absolutely. I think, you know, for me, I had a, a background in actually in ministry and in church for, for a lot of my 20s. And what I found to be interesting that I don't know is a direct byproduct, but just my experience was how I process things is it seemed like in the West, growth and spirituality seem to indicate that you're supposed to be moving towards certainty. Whereas as I expanded my mind and as I really took an honest look at my experience, it actually felt like it's the other way where you become less certain or at least you question more, right? And I found that to be an interesting uh, dynamic between the kind of Western way of looking at things and the Eastern way is we really prize certainty and we really prize being right and protecting it at all costs versus maybe a little bit more of a stripping away and a challenging of your thoughts is, is more how I see growth now. Does that make sense? You know, it does. And I think you put it, you know, really well. Uh, you know, I think the West has always been focused on, you know, kind of progress, um, evolution in a way, you know, uh, religious certainty, um, you know, even cultural, you know, America wave the flag. And there's some part of that that's beautiful and absolutely, you know, it's part of the tradition in our country and part of it, you can be just a little bit blind, right. Mm. And not necessarily see the big picture when you're coming out of nationalism. So, um, you know, one thing I studied in, in this college, in this, uh, this master's program was Hegelian philosophy, which is you have your original kind of premise and then you analyze the opposite of that premise and you realize that truth is reconciling somewhere between those two polar opposites and that history is this constant process of having a thesis, having a, a challenge to that thesis, and then building something that's more comprehensive, you know, more full and, and wiser. And, yeah. and I think that's kind of what you're talking about is this, this constant process of the truth unfolding and it's not necessarily always the truth that you thought it was when you started your journey. Yeah, I'm laughing because I was thinking about it was about six, seven years ago, I was checking out of a Barnes and Noble and I had a stack of books, you know, and one of them, I can't even remember the name of it, but it was something pretty bold, like God is a lie or something like that by, you know, Hitchens or somebody. Right. And the lady looked really surprised while she was doing it. And she, you know, she's probably you know, a Christian, and which is great. So am I. Mm -hmm. But she mm -hmm. just made this assumption that I was obviously, you know, an atheist or something. And she said, you know, don't give up on God or something like that. I said, I didn't say I was. And I said, uh, I believe truth is held in tension. And so I want to know what the tension is. I want to know what the other side of the equation is or the other perspective. And it just went over her head. She was like, I, I don't know what you mean. And just checked me out. But that's kind of <laughs> how I think about things like we all get so afraid of the opposing point of view or what, and I, I'm like, no, it's somewhere in between. There's some tension that actually we need to lean into instead of try to always resolve. Does that make sense? 
uh, Hegel was there and would absolutely confirm what you're uh, what you're okay. talking about. It's uh, you know truth is always held in tension between differing points of view, and it's always reconciling and moving, right? Not necessarily in a particular direction. It just unfolds, and mm. uh, you know I think you know we as humanity are unfolding, you know, at our pace and. At each epoch, we have different challenges that we face that we need to work through and work through together, really. Um, yeah. And you can't be a lone wolf. Can you speak to that for a second? The idea of an epic or epoch, right? Like, I love that that idea of themes and, and seasons and things like that. What do you, how do you think about that? You know, I, I view kind of history through the lens of the evolution of consciousness, like how we as humans have really changed our perspective over time, um, you know, and obviously, you know, we had a very kind of much more strict religious, you know, Western medieval worldview. And then we came into, you know, quote, the age of enlightenment. Uh, we could probably debate that term, um, you know, where basically science came and, and, you know, could explain the world in greater and greater depths. And then there was this really the tension between, you know, Christianity or, or Judaism and kind of this scientific worldview that came into being and, you know, how that has played out over time. And I think, you know, we've discovered that it, nothing is one or the other, right? It's, it's a bit of both. And, and how do those two, you know, sides dance and play with each other? So I, you know, so when I look at an epoch, you know, you could look at it in a big sense or a small sense, but, you know, I, I do believe that this, you know, this, tension between science and and religion is definitely one of the fundamental tenets that humanity has you know struggled with for hundreds of years absolutely well so if if if, if you're listening to us right now you're wondering how are we on this subject when we got into a business podcast i can't help it this is my podcast and i love talking about things like this i also think it's part of my curiosity which is you're now in this deep dive that we're talking about right now of rethinking your purpose and rethinking your worldview, how does that then lead to the business of cannabis? How does that, is there a logical chain of events or is that just part of, you know, a sub sub footing of, of this journey? You know, it's interesting. I think founding a cannabis company is really kind of the capstone event, you know, in my business life of bringing together meaning, um, purpose with a, a crazy challenging business environment. Um, so, you know, I would say that that by, by studying these different worldviews, um, when I went to this small school in San Francisco, opened my mind up to different ways. And one of those was actually plant medicine. So cannabis is a plant medicine. Um, you know, we've heard more and more in the newspapers about psilocybin mushrooms um, playing a role. Uh, and there is, you know, San Francisco is certainly on the liberal side when it comes to, uh, to drugs, um, you know, California in general, but San Francisco where I'm based. And, you know, they're doing phase three clinical trials uh, with a lot of mental illnesses, trying to see, uh, you know, how these kind of hallucinogenic type drugs can actually rewire your mind and correct some of the, you know, errors that form because we think too much or we have a serious emotional experience that's negative in our life. And how do we get past that? And clearly COVID has been a crazy time of, you know, not the usual 
community that binds us together, or even in many cases, you know, seeing family that binds us together, yeah. um, you know, because of the pandemic. So, um, so I think what, what really uh, the opportunity that I had and my business partner had was to travel uh, around the world and, and try some different plant medicines and have that really open a new thought process to our consciousness of like, wow, the world's a little bit bigger than we see it day to day when we're going to the grocery store. And, and that plant medicine has a posi- can play a positive role in that evolution. And also to be careful because anything you do too much or do it for the wrong reasons um, can go from being a benefit to a, a major life you know, detriment. So, um, you know, and that's true in, in, in anything. Uh, so, you know, I think for me, I've been a cannabis user since, you know, since I was in high school, I would say a very modest cannabis user. Um, you know, I ran marathons. Uh, started businesses, worked on Wall Street, you know. So I feel like this, the myth is that if you're smoking cannabis or, you know, eating a cannabis edible, that you're really moving away from reality and, and that, you, you know, and your performance suffers. But there is a pretty big milieu of people, particularly on the West Coast, where it's been socially acceptable for a few decades, right, that are incredibly high performers while also using cannabis on a modest basis. Um, and now you've got you know, venture capitalists doing microdosing of, of either uh, psilocybin, uh, maybe ketamine or, or ecstasy in small, small doses to really catalyze their consciousness in a new way. So, you know, so the thing that I'm really excited about is you know, cannabis is kind of leading the charge, but I do think if, if taken in kind of like a sacred way uh some of these drugs can actually be breakthroughs in our own personal relationships with ourselves with our loved ones um you know and with the world you know if done in kind of more of a a, a sacramental version rather than you know just uh you know kind of a, a party version i mean yeah I'm, I'm not opposed to that either but uh but i do feel like the, the true gateway is is doing it with with thought and consciousness I love that. Yeah, I have no problem with, I mean, we do it all the time, right? Like alcohol, whatever. People have plenty of normalized things they do to escape for a minute. But I do think where it's most interesting is where the conversation has shifted towards exploring the sacred and even the scientific side of how mm-hmm. this could go. When you were referring to the studies earlier, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Johns Hopkins study where they're doing on the psilocybin and like treatment-resistant depression and end-of-life care kind of stuff? Yeah, so... Uh, uh, NYU did, uh, um, like, uh, end of life kind of, I guess, you know, cancer patients when they're towards the end of their life, just the trauma is so enormous. Sure. And so they're basically having either a one or two dose, uh, with psilocybin and, but doing it with a guided therapist, you know, someone who's there in a sacred setting to really have you experience this, but also to be safe. And they have found that one or two episodes is, is having such a dramatic impact for people to accept death, to really go back to connect with their, their family and their friends mm. before death. It's having a profound, um, you know, profound experience. I was actually just walking my dog and talking with my neighbor yesterday morning. And uh, somehow the topic of, of, of ketamine came up. And he said that, he said he had one friend 
who was has been so depressed for years, he was honestly very concerned about suicide. And he did some ketamine therapy and he goes, I don't know what happened, but it reprogrammed him. And now he's married and happy. You know, I'm sure he has his challenges, right? We all have our challenges, but somehow this, this brief encounter was able to completely change this person's life for the wow. positive. And, and that's what I think is, is profound. And we're at the tip of the iceberg and really doing any scientific tests to understand these. So John Hopkins has done tests. UCLA has done tests. And I think it's going to, you know, it's going to expand from there. Wow. Yeah. So the way I've heard it explained to me that makes a lot of sense, especially in my business, you know, outside the podcast, I'm doing coaching a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. your performance, your mindset, your that kind of thing. There's kind of two ways that we're formed and the two ways we change that are kind of the same thing. They're just formation things. One is a limbic experience, which is a very powerful, emotional, almost imprinting moment. Like the moment itself is so powerful that it imprints a way of thinking and feeling kind of fired together, wired together thoughts and emotions. Others are slow over time and you can change either way. So mm-hmm. therapy, conscious meditation and affirmations, like those are the slow and, and kind of slow building bricks of breaking down old ways of thinking and bringing in new patterns of thinking for your anxiety or for your, you know, your goal directed nature or whatever. And then there's the others, there's a limbic experience where you experience trauma or you experience the opposite, like almost healing in a sense where something really profound happened in a moment. And I think that's the interesting part that is not, does not um, only happen in these experiences, but it is a, could be a more predictable way to happen, which is end up like exactly what you're talking about. If we can have a guided almost therapy um, session where you could have a limbic experience and the part of you that has been really imprinted with some very depression oriented wiring or anxiety, it might reprint a new disposition that is maybe much more open and much more trusting of self or trusting of, of, of the universe, that kind of thing. To me, scientifically, that makes sense. I'm like, yeah, we either get imprinted in a moment, like something really traumatic happens and that's why we have PTSD and all those kinds of things. Uh, or we can do the slow building blocks. And I think if we do both, we're utilizing both options of the form, the brain formation, right? Goes back to that uh, both and solution, right? Yes. Um, you know, it's so many times, you know, people have had either maybe a scare with cancer that they were able to come back from or, you know, a family member, you know, passing away. That's a catalyst, right? And that's that powerful in the moment catalyst that, you know, if you approach it, you know, the right way can actually be, you know, completely transformative to your own experience. Um, and the slow path is also needs to be taken. Um, you know, it's kind of like when I talk about the cannabis industry, I always say it's a, uh, sprint and a marathon at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do have a question that I think will, from what I can tell will apply more than just to myself. But speaking about cannabis in particular, being your, your kind of focus and your area of expertise at this point, yep. you mentioned earlier uh, the both really positive benefits, but then also some of the cautionary elements of it. And, you know, for me, I had, I had my experience with cannabis when I was younger, you know, middle school, high school kind of thing, mm-hmm. left that behind for 10 or 15 years and found myself, you know, about six, seven years ago in a state where it was legal and thought, Hey man, 
let's see what this is all about again you know let me just have fun and uh it was a terrible experience for me i mm -hmm. I, I think it was too much too fast it was the um it was the dab kind of you know stuff no, yes. i didn't know anything it'd been 15 years and someone tried yeah. this you know and i probably had like a three-hour panic strong. attack you know yeah. and it led to a series of panic attacks over the over the next few years that i've had to slowly unwind from like that moment like really triggered some fear in me and some anxiety and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff and so i walked away being like i don't know how to think about this am i allergic yeah. to it did i you know in my mind just thinking like i'm all for it you know i have some friends that it turns on their creativity and helps open up their mind in a new way. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, I don't think I want to touch it again out of my personal mm -hmm. experience. How do you think about that, that kind of ends of the spectrum? Yeah. Um, I think our bodies are all so unique and how we respond to cannabis is everywhere from A to Z. Um, so my business partner, Cameron, his, his reaction to cannabis is like yours. It's really anxiety producing. Um, you know, it's like kind of makes them like a couch potato in a way, right? And uh, and it's not a good feeling in general. Uh, if you take smaller and smaller doses, then I think you can you can if you start with the smallest dose and slightly increase, I think you can work around that a little bit. Um, whereas for me, you know, cannabis is a stimulant, and I'm that guy that thinks totally creatively and you know can get stuff done, and I'm really energetic, and so. They're actually beginning right now to do kind of a 23andMe style of, of DNA testing to, to basically try to figure out whether you'll respond positively to THC uh, and CBD. Uh, yeah. So my partner, Cameron, responds really well to CBD. It even gives him a little bit of a, an effect from it, but it's like a wellness product for him, whereas I don't feel like CBD, I even feel it. Like it doesn't do anything for me. And so here we are, you know, the two people founding, you know, the kind of gummies. I love and we that. have two completely different experiences with THC and CBD. I love that. And I, I think, again, if we can just have a more honest conversation, it allows for some of the nuance of instead of saying it's all bad or it's all good, everybody should do it have a little bit more of a like, man, it's kind of like anything else you'd put in your body. Like, let's see how you respond to it. And maybe you like this better than this, or your body agrees with this more than this, or even your unique personality and, and those kinds of things. So I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I feel the same way where I have no problem with anybody else doing it for me. I just like, I got to think twice about, <laughs> about this, you know? Well, I could tell you that, uh, like, you know, I've been, a, like I said, a, a modest, consumer of cannabis for 30 years. And uh, I went to my first cannabis event and did a dab and it was way too strong for me. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a completely negative experience. Um, so, uh, you know, even someone who can be kind of a lifelong user uh, can have that same kind of negative experience to a particular product. That's, that's one of the reasons why I think cannabis gummies have actually grown so enormously. Like it's captured such a big chunk of the cannabis market because you can take kind of a low dose edible. And uh, at, at, with Kana gummies, we actually have a nano gummy. Um, means that the THC and the CBD inside it is, is embedded in a nano particle. So your body absorbs it more quickly. So uh, in the old days, 
you know, in San Francisco, you could go to Dolores Park and buy a brownie, right? But you had no idea uh, how much cannabis was in that brownie. And normally it was way too much. Sure. And, you know, one part of the, of the brownie pan gets all the weed and the other part, you just have a brownie and you get all the sugar. Um, I call that kind of stoner roulette. What we've done is we've really perfected dosing uh, with cannabis and allow for low milligram dosing. And uh, at Thunderstorm, we actually won the award a couple years ago in California for the most accurately formulated edible because people want to know that it's they can have a repeat experience. Yes. And you know, until we had licensed products that required lab testing, everything was a crapshoot. So what we found is that there's a whole world of people 40 to 80 that have come back in and are using cannabis for sleep, um, for relaxation, like you would an IPA or a glass of Cabernet, um, you know, for, for pain and, and sometimes for even anxiety and depression. Again, it depends on how your body you know, yeah. reacts. In some cases, it can accelerate that. In other cases, ameliorate that. So, um, so there's been a lot of fun experimentation uh, for people, you know, my age, um, going into dispensaries and talking to bud tenders about what they've heard from their friends, word of mouth, and then getting products to try. And, and it's a surprising amount of people that are coming back and saying, wow, this is actually, you know, I wake up uh, without being groggy like I did, you know, having, you know, three Hangover. beers yeah. or a couple glasses of wine. Um, and so it's been kind of a, a fun thing seeing uh, people who may have never tried it in their life or may have tried it when they were younger, but hadn't tried it for the last 20 years, uh, having some amazing you know, positive experiences with the plant. Well, you know, I did some research on your website as well, looking to those nanoparticles and kudos to you for doing the work to figure out how to, how to do the predictable experience and the accurate dosing. Because I, I think from what I can tell, again, I don't use it. I've used it since that time, but friends who are getting back into it and those kinds of things, you know, they could have half a gummy and that mm -hmm. first half feel nothing. And then they take a day later, the other half, and it's way too much because however that was made, like you said, it was almost like that half of the gummy had all the THC and that half had none of yeah. it. And they're like, I don't know what to do with this, you know? Um, yeah. so I can see the need for that consistent quality manufacturing and all of that kind of stuff for the dosing, um, on the business side, what was the biggest challenge? And also what was the biggest key to having this as a business actually take off uh, in the market? Yeah. Um, you know, when my partner and I talk about cannabis, it's like, it's like a five or six layer chess game. Um, because you have so many regulations, both at the state level and at the city level, um, You've got a marketplace that, you know, has never been legal before and no one really knows what product is going to grow and, and, and how it's going to be sold. So uh, I would just say the uncertainty, like every decision you make, every corner you turn, there's just an extraordinary amount of uncertainty because no one's really done this before. And, uh, and so I think, you know, the, the antidote to that is to really make sure that you know, you've got business partners, like we've got a strategic partner that we talk to every week, having people that you can bounce ideas off of so that you're, you're not just making decisions in your own vacuum, but rather 
you know, you've got a, a platform to discuss different options where together you can arrive at a conclusion that is more likely to be a good business decision. Now, is that something that you all do kind of organically that you have people that you know, hey, if I need to, I pick up the phone? Or is there a process that you've kind of brought into the collaborative thinking and decision-making process? You know, it's more case by case organically. Um, but we definitely like, we'll, we'll sort out issues. Some issues are, you know, solvable, right? If it's an HR issue or an employee, um, but some things really require really complex thought. So we'll set aside the, the complex issues and then get together typically on a Saturday when we're not busy with the day-to-day -day phone calls and text messages and spend a couple hours and sort through the bigger strategic decisions. The weekdays are tactical, you know, Saturday morning is strategic. Hmm. Interesting. I like, I like having different designations, right? So that you, you know, this part of the week is, is more in this vein. And then this day or this morning is more this vein seems to be uh, highly productive versus the multitasking. I'm in, I'm in strategic mode. Now I'm in kind of operation execution mode. It can, it can kind of get a lot of squirrely there. Um, I'm curious for you, you know, one of the questions I told you that I wanted to explore is right now, what would you say you're, you know, you're most passionate about sharing idea wise that either would accelerate someone's business that's listening to this or accelerate their personal life, the growth of the, as a person, what would be that thing that's kind of the big idea you'd like to pass along? Yeah. Um, I'm a big believer that embedding ourselves in community is what brings meaning to our life. Um, and, you know, I'll relay, I'm going to kind of butcher this, but, but you'll get the general gist. Uh, they, they did a science exhibit or science experiment with, uh, uh, with mice in a lab. And they had two scenarios. Um, the first scenario, in both scenarios, they put cocaine uh, in a little water injection so the mice could go up and freely take kind of this watered down cocaine uh, anytime they wanted. And in the first case, they put a, a mouse by themselves in this kind of play box, right? And the mouse was alienated and, and didn't have a context to live life, ended up always going over to the cocaine, overdosing and dying relatively quickly. Then they took the same physical environment, but they put a bunch of other mice in there with them and then had things for the mice to do, you know, kind of a, a roller track, you know, different kind of things to kind of keep them occupied. And what they discovered is that the mice went over and just very minutely did cocaine occasionally, but in super small dose. And all the mice really lived a kind of a longer, harmonious, you know, we can imagine happier lifestyle. Um, and so the researchers kind of concluded that addiction is related to being lonely and alienation. Yeah. Uh, and if you have a strong support network, you know, family, friends, if you've got hobbies that you like doing outside of work, um, you know, whatever it is that kind of brings joy in your life, if you can do it with other human beings in a, in a way that brings you, you know, kind of that element of happiness, then 
the train is going to stay on the tracks and it's not going to like derail at the same pace as if you didn't have that. So I, I really, I become a huge believer in, in community. I w- I'm so glad we're talking about that. That has probably been, as I look back at my life, one of the top lessons or uh, biggest influences in the positive has been when I've had great, great com- community, great friends. And the impact that's had on my marriage, on my personal health, on my goals, on my emotional stability. Yet I also know the longer we get when you move cities and you change careers and seasons change, you start to realize it gets really difficult to know how to do that the older we get. And you find most people don't have what we would call community. They may have people they see. They may have places they go, but they don't have what you're talking about. I would love to know one, well, I got a few questions, but the first one would be, why do you think it's so challenging? Why do you think most of us don't have great community? You know, I think kind of the Western model of living is everybody's in their own house or their own apartment. Um, We tend not to live with extended family. You know, we live with our, you know, wife and kids or, you know, a roommate. Um, So it's kind of isolating in a certain way. you know, I lived in New York City for a decade. And what I loved about New York City is that everybody pretty much lives in a really small apartment that costs a fortune. So they're forced to really go, you know, and have their social life out. So the bars are full, restaurants are full, museums are, are active, you know, plays, Broadway, all these things capture attention because, you know, the physical act of living in a, in an urban, like super urban area forces you to go outside. I think people that live in more suburban kind of more, you know, rural, you know, kind of areas, uh, you know, have a house with a backyard. And of course we have a fence around our backyard generally so that we don't see our neighbors. We can do our own barbecuing by ourselves. And that just doesn't really, you know, set itself up naturally for a lot of, uh, community. I think when your kids are young, you know, you kind of build community at the school with other parents, you know, play dates and, and that experience. So there's, I think, you know, kind of having kids actually is, does help build community. Um, if you don't have that, I think you actually have to work quite hard at it. Absolutely. There's a few things you said that I think are really important. One, I'm reading this book right now by Brad Stolberg, uh, called the practice of groundedness. And if you haven't read that, if you're listening to this or, or just even you, Keith, it's unbelievable. He, uh, he wrote the book Peak, and I'd read that years ago. He's, he's like a track coach and has really studied endurance athletes and high performers. And um, interestingly enough, though, he developed a pretty serious case of OCD and kind of obsessive negative thinking that really sent him in a downward spiral for about a year after his success. It was actually after the success of Peak. And he was like, I'm missing something. Like, I've been studying my whole life what makes people achieve great things. And so for him, it was actually finding groundedness. He was like, man, I realized I wasn't, no one was teaching me how to be successful without crushing my soul. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that he coined, maybe he coined, I, he could have borrowed it, I could be misremembering, but is this idea of heroic individualism. And that, that's maybe a phrase he uses that you're talking about, kind of the Western way of thinking, is this heroic individualism. And he said it's characterized by the constant one-upmanship that you feel like you're supposed to have 
in terms of your neighbor, you know, always needing to, to do more, achieve more, be more, and that you only uh, measure success in very uh, measurable, objective ways, you know? And he said that creates this insane amount of constant pressure. It creates the never fulfilled feeling that once you've accomplished one, you've got to accomplish more and the goalpost is always moving. Um, and I just found that really fascinating. Like, yeah, there's this heroic individualism that we are up against that's kind of keeping us separated because even if we, our kids make friends, even if we do find some people that we go to the gym with or whatever, it's still pretty rare that anyone asks a real question. It's still pretty sure. rare that anyone like takes a chance and says, I'm struggling or says, I'm really scared. You know, how's your business going? Great, man. Busy, busier than ever. Okay. How are you? Like that is still a rare conversation, even if we have friends. Um, and so I'm curious if that's part of it too, is, a, is the courage or like the, the people that lead the way with saying like, I want to ask a real question or I'd like to really know how you're doing. Does that make sense? It does. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting, like living in New York City, uh, people are always like, ah, New Yorkers are pushy and bossy. But, you know, ironically, I felt like when I was at a bar in New York, you could actually have a legitimate conversation with someone that you've never met before and you're never going to see again. Like there's a certain depth that can occur there. I feel like in California, um, it takes longer really to break through with someone to get to that level. Um, and, you know, and when you look at what's happened over the last couple of years during the pandemic, you know, not having that base of friends and family that know you and have already cut through the crap and, and can, can see how you're doing without you even having to answer the question, like not having that support structure has been devastating for so many people. And, uh, you know, we, we've just have to figure out a way to, you know, figure out maybe new ways of, of, of envisioning community, yeah. you know, and support for sure. Absolutely. You know, for me personally, I told you I had that, that bad experience and it, it wasn't the creator of my anxiety. My anxiety had been around my whole life. I think that experience with weed just accentuated it and brought it to a head. And so in many ways it was a gift. I mean, it forced me to really start to look at and figure out why I'm so tightly wound up and why has anxiety always been there. But, uh, so I sought help. You know, at some point I realized I was doing the heroic individualism thing and started meeting with a therapist who's amazing. And um, one of the questions he asked me that I'll never forget is he said, how often in percentage terms, how often are you seeking to resolve your own problems 100% by yourself? Like without letting somebody else in. And I said, I would say pretty much 95% or more of the time. And he goes, well, that's why you have anxiety. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, life has a lot of challenges. If you are always seeking to resolve them completely in and of yourself without letting your wife in on it, without letting your friends in on it, that is just going to be building up inside of you. And it wasn't the only reason, but it was a big one. There was an aha that I'm, I'm always trying to resolve this myself. I got this. I'll work through the anger. I'll work through this, this, the fear of running my business and the uncertainties attached to it. I don't want to put that on anybody. I don't want to bring that on them. And so I started reaching out to my wife. I, I called up two of my friends that I've known the longest. And I said, I don't think you haven't, I, I literally sent a text. I felt like a kid. And I said, I don't think you know this, but I've been really going through some hard anxiety stuff. Would it be okay if I called you every now and then when I need support? 
And he, he got mad. He's like, I feel like you're texting somebody you don't know. He's like, yes, call me anytime you want. And so actually the three of us have been meeting weekly now. Like we meet weekly on Zoom. We're not in the same city. Just to ask each other, how are you? Like, how are you? What do you need right now? You know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, dang, that, that had always been available. But it literally didn't <laughs> cross my mind just to take the next step and say, can you help me resolve this? Can you help me think through this? You know? Um, so I'm curious, what does that look like in your life? Like, where have you found that community? Or, or are there any, any ways that you're intentional about not isolating and not trying to resolve everything yourself? Yeah. Um, you know, I call what you're talking about the lone wolf, you know, syndrome, um, where you just feel like you've got to deal with everything yourself. I feel that, you know, men in particular have kind of, you know, particularly my age, uh, you know, and above have, you know, the role models we had were, you know, men that didn't show emotion, John and, Wayne you know, didn't cry and yeah, didn't, you know, a lot of World War II movies. Um, and, you know, now we're understanding that, you know, men have a feminine side and a masculine side and women have a masculine side and a feminine side. And we only become whole as a person when we kind of acknowledge and, and really allow both sides of those to, to, you know, play a role in our life. And so, um, you know, so I think that's part of the reason why for me leaving Wall Street was reading a lot of these different books was just to understand uh, that it wasn't always like go, go masculinity, masculinity that really is what's driving everything. I mean, the reality is most of the decisions we make are based on emotion rather than reason. And so, uh, you know, so we need to kind of honor that. Otherwise, it's going to end up kind of in an unhealthy, you know, long-term situation. So, um, so yeah, kind of countering the lone wolf syndrome for, yeah. for me personally, I, uh, I actually learned to DJ about 10 years ago. Um, so I, I've always loved, uh, basically electronic music ever since it first came out in the eighties, kind of late seventies, early eighties. And, uh, so I love house music. So wow. I've got a group of people, you know, we're all kind of in our fifties, uh, who learned to DJ basically in my garage. And, uh, and now we, we bought a sound system and we'll go to like, uh, Oakland has a first Friday event where they close off three or four blocks. You know, they have food vendors and people selling art and, you know, different, different things. We actually set up our sound system and play house music for free. And it's just amazing that people, they walk by when sometimes they have little kids and the little kids start dancing and they want to come over and they start dancing. Like everybody needs some kind of release. Yes. That's not mental. Like we're, we're such mental creatures. We're always thinking that we just need to suspend that thinking. And I honestly think dancing to more of a trance like music uh, is one way that we can kind of just be grounded. Right. And get out of our own way because sometimes we're our, our worst enemy rather than our, our best friend. Oh, that is so huge. I, for me, that has been critical, and I'll fall into the trap sometimes daily of being in my mind and then trying to get out of my mind by being in my mind, like trying to solve solve it here instead of like working out. Like when I was having anxiety attacks, running was the only thing that would help me. 
And I think mm-hmm. it was because it got me moving and it got that energy almost re- it like repurposed it. Instead of like trying to sit there and resolve it, I would just get going and start moving and express it and have music in my ears. And then it started being phone calls. And I started noticing it was all around expressing instead of repressing. That mm-hmm. I had been yeah. kind of taught to repress feelings. Like, don't be angry, don't cry, don't be scared. And so I would stuff it, stuff it. And I'm like, man, art, DJing, dancing, singing, working out, playing a sport and sweating while you're doing it, having a good conversation are all versions of expressing. And it allows things to move through you instead of stay uh, trapped in you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So that's been, that's, I'm still learning it. Literally, like, I'm in the middle of, of learning this. Like it's a daily re like we're talking about the small steps. Like uh, the last year has been a daily, like here's my, oh, I fell into that trap again. I'm repressing things. I'm trying to go inward. Nope. I need to go outward right now. I need to go on a walk. I need to sing, like find my favorite music recently, man. I was realizing, I don't know how to, I don't know how to let like grief out or I don't know how to let like sadness happen. Yeah. And the only thing I could think of was that the last time I remembered feeling that feeling was watching uh, The Greatest Showman. Do you remember that show, that movie? No, I didn't see that. Oh, man. I, it could be unique to me, even though I know it was a huge sensation. But, like, whatever the storyline is and the music, it's a musical. The, <laughs> it just grabs me. And so I was like, I'm going to try that. I haven't listened to that in a few years. I was crying. I was walking around my house crying listening to this song. And I was like, I haven't mm. accessed that emotion and music helped me access it. It like cut straight through the brain and into the heart. And there it is. I can feel that. Okay. You know, does that make sense? It does. I mean, it's like, sometimes you have to just short circuit your mind by fooling it, you know, dancing, music, all these things are ways to just stop the mind's chatter just a little bit enough that other parts of your being and your consciousness can come through. So uh, I totally agree with you. Now, before we get into the lightning round questions, I know we're coming up here on our time. Are there any resources? Are there any books that you particularly love or authors or thinkers that you would turn someone on listening to this that maybe wants to explore more of that, this community or the idea of community or vulnerability or expression, uh, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I, for me, part of my path was begun by studying Buddhism. Um, and, you know, some people look at Buddhism as a religion, but it's really a psychology. Um, it's about slowing down the mind. Um, and so there's, you know, different beginning Buddhism books. And you can be a, a practicing Christian and, and look at Buddhism as, as like therapy. Um, yeah. You know, so it's not, it's not meant to be a threat to any anybody's you know current belief system um it's more of an add add on to and i do think that buddhism uh is really about grounding yourself in you know away from the chatter of the mind and you know so you know any tricks that basically on you know meditation uh for me i just found that when i danced to electronic music that was my my meditation and you know i come away just completely energized uh, after having done it. And I also burn off some calories. So it's a double victory. There you go. And that I am the, the example that I'll probably get a lot of shit from this. I don't really care, but I am a practicing Christian and I love all that stuff. I've read practicing Buddha time. Uh, I love even some Taoism stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. Wayne Dyer and people like that are amazing sure. to me. Absolutely. Um, 
I, I, I want to learn from all of it, you know, like, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ancient wisdom that we are all sharing in common. And, um, so anyways, it's helped me tremendously. So I'd be happy to check that out and recommend it as well. And then I found meditation, like you said, can be, I can meditate when I'm running. I can meditate while yes. me music can be that me uh, going to the driving range by myself to play golf is a meditative experience because it locks my focus into the here and now. I, I get so focused on just the swing and the motion of it that like, I'm not in the future. I'm not in the past. And it's such a great break to be right here, you know? Uh, so I've even expanded sure. my mind on what it mean to be meditative or contemplative. How do I be present? And to me, it's all practice. Like I was in Disney world. I told you this last week, man, that was the greatest practice because you're standing in a two hour freaking line. And your mind wants to escape and wants to think about business or wants to worry. And I had to just see to the training ground and go, Nope, I'm here with my kids. Like, yep. th that's what we're doing. We're, we're not, we're not in business. We're, we're, we're right here. What are they doing? How are they feeling? Let's have a conversation. And it was difficult, but when by day two or day three, my brain started locking in to just what we're doing. And it was so relieving to have the ego and all the chatter finally start to calm down. And you're just, present with people right um, for sure keith this has been so fun thank you for for going in the winding path of philosophy and business and back and forth i, I know this has been really special for me um and now i want to end with just our quick five questions and then i will let you get back to your day so these are five questions that we have asked every founder on the podcast so far number one if you could ingrain just one message into your entire organization. So we like to think about like being a billboard that your people see every day. What would that message be? That everybody has a different personality type. And when you're sitting here thinking, why don't they get it? Uh, it's because you're looking at it through your personality type uh, and they're looking at it through their personality type. So I think, you know, things like the Enneagram or just understanding archetypes, uh, allow you to, to have a better, more productive conversation in business uh, if you know that everybody is coming from a somewhat different place. Yes. I'm a huge Enneagram fan, by the way. So Enneagram 9 with an 8 wing, if that makes any sense to anybody listening. Uh, what would yours be? Uh, 7, and I'm not sure what the wing is. It's been okay. a while since I, I looked at that, but... I can totally see a seven, especially in the cannabis business. That's, that's awesome. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, what's interesting though, to your credit though, is most sevens avoid pain and discomfort and they avoid slowing down and asking the deeper stuff. And so you've obviously done a lot of integrative work to not avoid, but actually dive deeper, which is cool. Uh, all yeah. right. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst advice? I'll start with the worst advice, which uh, is when I was working on Wall Street for one of the big, you know, Wall Street companies. And uh, my boss left to go start this small company. And they said, you know what, you'd be crazy to walk away from, you know, our guaranteed salary from you. You know, you're not going to make it, you know, as an entrepreneur. And that only motivated me more to leave because that's not the environment that, that I really felt like you know, my heart and my, and mine wanted to be part of. So I did leave uh, and I was successful being an entrepreneur away from the big companies. So uh, the worst advice is you can't do it. How about the best advice? Anything come to mind? Um, 
you know, the, the, the best advice is to, when you're looking at any decision, particularly like a transition in life, listen to your heart, not just your mind. Your heart has a lot of knowledge there and ultimately probably has a better track record on being right. Absolutely. It makes me think of um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. That, that to me, put it at least not in the only way of thinking about it, but put it in a way that made a lot of sense about when we say listen to our heart, often we're talking about our deepest instincts, the part of us that's been paying attention without us knowing that is we can train. We can learn to listen to that and tap into that. And nine times out of 10, it's going to lead us in a good direction. That's um, a great book. Okay, number three, what currently causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization? You know, I think finance is always the, the biggest challenge. And uh, I'm the chief financial officer of our company. So it's, uh, you know, I've got, we now have about 240 employees. And, you know, all those employees have families or, you know, maybe children. And, uh, so for me, it's just making sure that we can navigate smart financial decisions so that, you know, we can meet payroll, you know, expand our business, you know, get our products out there to help the wellness of, you know, our consumers. So, uh, yeah, I think in many businesses for an entrepreneur, uh, you know, the finance capital side is, uh, is stressful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Number four. What is your current BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal, or however you would think about the big, the big goal that you guys are going after? Yep. Uh, we want to be one of the top three national edible brands in, in the cannabis space. Uh, today, we're actually number four, and we've just expanded from California to three new states, Nevada, Colorado, and Massachusetts. So if you're in any of those other three states, you can find Kana gummies uh, at your at one of your local dispensaries. We're still starting, so we're not at all the dispensaries yet. But uh, you could go to sunderstorm.com and find uh, Kana gummies near you. And if you're in one of those states, so you know we have a big aspiration to to be a, a really well known long term cannabis edibles brand. And I think we're you know we're on track for that, but we're still at the beginning of the mountain. If you're at number four, you're definitely on track for that. <laughs> you're well on your way, my friend. Okay, number five. This would probably be a great question to ask you after you ate some of your gummies, but this is our creative question. So if you could hop into a DeLorean and you get to go back to your past, we're not there necessarily to change anything, but you do get to pass along a message. When would you go back in your past and what message would you pass along to, to, the, to a younger version of yourself? Yeah. Um, I would love to pass along a message when I left Wall Street. So that was when I was 35. So a couple decades ago. Um, because I was scared, you know. Uh, you know, my identity and ego was tied up being this, you know, bond trader on wall street having a really good salary and you know being able to kind of afford everything i wanted to do and you know i was walking away from that to nothing to go and spend money getting an education in philosophy and religion which was unlikely to have the same financial payoff um and i guess i would go back to myself at that time and give the opposite advice i got from when i when I left the big Wall Street firm, which is trust in yourself, 
you know, life is a long journey and it seems like every decision and everything is like massively important today, but there's going to be so many different rivulets that, that basically come and go from the river. Uh, and you're going to, you know, just kind of take it easy, sit back, you know, be, be conscious, but don't be afraid. And if you end up on a dead end path, you'll find your way back to the main, main river for sure. Don't panic. Come on. I need to hear that today. <laughs> yes, we all do. I need to hear that today. That's why I like that question, man. It's, it's the wisdom we needed to hear then. And it's likely the wisdom we just need to keep hearing again and again. So Keith, this has been one of my favorite conversations I've had this year. So thank you so much for making time to be with us today on the podcast, to share your story, share your heart and your wisdom with us. It's been truly appreciated. I really appreciate it as well. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.